Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. Folks, welcome back. It is great to have you here. On this episode, for a third time now on Chat with Traders, is a trader of 30-odd years, Nick Raj. Nick is a systematic trader of trend-following, momentum, and mean reversion strategies, which he runs across Australian and US equity markets. Now, when I asked Nick if he'd be willing to do another podcast, I said to him, this time around though, I'd like to discuss something very specific with you, and that is how to create a simple trend-following strategy. So that's exactly what we did, a complete breakdown of Nick's process. This includes details about strategy objectives and idea generation, portfolio testing and analyzing results, position sizing and risk management, and execution in a live market. I'm sure this episode will be really helpful for anyone who's interested in writing those big market trends, regardless of asset class. And even if trend following doesn't overly appeal to you, then I think you'll still pick up a few useful things regarding system design. Please remember this is not to be treated as financial advice and the examples given are just that, they're examples. So do your own testing and do your own due diligence because you're entirely responsible for your own trading decisions. Now, one last thing, and this is most important, I've got new edition Chat With Traders merchandise available right now. So if you want to wrap your favorite podcast on a t-shirt, go to chatwithtraders.com shop. Go there, get some, support the podcast. chatwithtraders.com shop. And on that note, that concludes the intro. Here is returning guest, Nick Raj. The goal or the, I guess the purpose of this episode would be how to create a simple trend following system. So ultimately, if someone's listening to this and they go, you know, I'd like to create a simple trend following system or trend following strategy, they can go tomorrow and pretty much know exactly what needs to be done. So I guess first things first, maybe something we should clarify is what's the objective or the characteristics of a trend following strategy? 
Because if someone's not clear on that, then the rest of this might be a little bit confusing. So when you when we talk about a trend following system or a trend following strategy, um, what does that look like? Well, trend following or a trend is simply price persistence in, in one direction, whether that be up or down. Um, it can happen. It's a fractal. So you'll see it from one-minute charts to 60-minute charts to dailies to weeklies to monthly. Um, trends don't occur all of the time, but they do occur enough of the time to exploit and to profit from. Um, and, you know, you can see trends in every kind of instrument. We've got the uh, the CTA kind of managed futures trend followers, who I guess would be the classic trend followers. They trade long and short, and they trade a very diversified type portfolio. And they're trading instruments right across the spectrum from foreign exchange to uh, grains to interest rates to long bonds to indexes. And more recently, they've gone into individual stocks. Um, then you've got other more serial correlated trend followers like myself that trade long only equities looking for those kinds of trends. So as a long only equity trend follower, my goals are quite simple. Um, for example, 80% of my assets are in trend following style systems across the world. And the goals are simple, um, to beat buy and hold. Uh, to protect the downside during sustained bear markets like we saw in the GFC and to do so with minimal workload and using a very systematic approach. Um, you know, I'm now at the point where I simply plug my account balance into the computer, push the button, it generates the orders, it does the position sizing and it places the orders with the broker and that's basically it. So it's very automated um, took 20 years to get to that, but you know, that's the way it does. Now I don't look at any charts or anything like that. So when we talk trend following, all we're talking about is price persistence. And the important thing with trend following is the ability to easily attain a mathematical positive expectancy, which is how we generate a profit. Okay. And that comes from the very simple um, phenomena of riding winners and cutting losses. It's as simple as that. So we're not necessarily trading for accuracy. Indeed, most solid trend following strategies have a win rate of somewhere around, you know, the 45 to 50%. That would be reasonably good. But where the money is made is where those winners really outperform the losers. Um, there's no prediction involved in it. And for a lot of people, that's quite difficult to understand. But the analogy which I use and have been known to use for many, many years is that of like a hitchhiker. So say, for example, uh, we want to travel um, from Brisbane down to Sydney um, if we're going to hitchhike. We're going to stand in the southbound lanes. We're not going to stand in the northbound lanes because there's a, no chance that a car heading north is going to Sydney. Um, so we stand in the southbound lane. And what that means with, with regard to trend following is we want to buy strength. We want to, we're not trying to buy a dip. We want to buy as the mo momentum of the stock is moving up or if we're trading on the short side, we want, only want to initiate a trade when the momentum is going down. The next thing with that analogy of a hitchhiker is 
well, we don't know what car is going to stop and pick us up. If we stand there long enough, a car will come along and will stop and will pick us up. And same when we're following a trend. We don't know which stock is going to run next. We don't know which one it's going to be, but if we catch enough of them, well, one will run a long way, and that's what we're after. The next point with the hitchhiker analogy is we don't know how far that ride is going to take us. Um, We might get a ride in Brisbane, and it might take us just to the Gold Coast. It might take us to Byron Bay. It might take us to Coffs Harbour. It might take us all the way to Sydney. We just don't know. What we do know is when the ride finishes, we just hop off. And same when we're trend following. We don't know how far it's going to go. We don't predict how far it's going to go. And we just keep following it until it turns. So the key concept of trend following is to buy strength or sell weakness. We know that price tends to persist. There's plenty of academic evidence out there about that. We ride those winners for everything they're worth and we cut those losses to create that positive expectancy and we don't predict. There's absolutely no prediction about it. What is it that you like about trend following in equities? Like you said earlier in your answer there, um, there are some CTAs and some fund managers who run trend following strategies across all types of asset classes. Is there anything that you particularly like about trend following in equities? So I have a history in the both. In both, I spent the first 17 years of my life um, trading uh, trend following in, in commodities. That's what I did. I finished up running a managed futures fund uh, that used trend following. And dare I say this, but I moved to equities in 2001 because it was easier to raise assets with trading or investing in stocks than it was trying to sell a commodity fund. People hear commodities, they hear pork bellies, they hear these kind of esoteric products and they run for the hills thinking, oh, that's some kind of a scam or whatever else, too much leverage, you get blown up doing that kind of stuff. But with equities, they kind of understand. So it was a bit of a catalyst for me to move across albeit a business catalyst. But personally, look, I like the equities approach. Um, You know, you have these growing businesses around the world all the time. Um, You know, you just got to look at these tech stocks in the last 10 years and you've got to think that these tech stocks were going through some kind of new industrial revolution and it's going to last a lot longer than what we've seen. I'm super bullish, um, the US, especially the tech side, for, for the next 10, 12 years. Um, and I, I think that's a key, a key thing. You've really got businesses that are growing, and as they grow, they're going to be driving those trends for you. And it's just a matter of capturing those growth parts of the market. Okay. And one other thing we should probably just make sure everyone's clear on is that for you, your trend-following systems are all um, end-of-day strategies, aren't they? They are minimum end-of-day. In other words, I do not look at any intraday price action. I don't even look at charts. Um, I now run a couple of models that run on a month-to-month basis. Um, so, Uh, let me clarify those two kinds of models, if you like. There's two types of trend following. And I guess if we're going to get pedantic, trend following in its classic sense is um, uh, a diversified portfolio of commodities 
uh, traded on an absolute basis. <clears throat> so there's two styles of trend following in my view. One is called absolute. Absolute trend following is when we look at a single instrument or a single symbol and we trade that symbol for what it's offering. So if we're looking at Apple and it's trending up, we want to be buying Apple. If we're looking at uh, NVIDIA and it's trending down, well, we want to be selling NVIDIA. We're looking at them on their own uh, on their own merits, if you like, individual stocks, whether it be cotton uh, or commodities, whatever it may be, on their individual. That's called absolute trend following. That's the classic one. The other one we would call relative momentum. It's still the same philosophy as trend following in that it buys strength, it sells weakness, it rides winners, it cuts losses, okay? But relative momentum is different in that it's looking at the strength of one instrument measured directly against the strength of a basket or a universe of similar interests. So rather than looking at Apple on its own, we would look at Apple compared to all the other stocks in the NASDAQ 100 as an example. So we would measure its trend somehow. Uh, usually we would measure it using the rate of change over a period of time. And then we would rank that rate of change or that power of momentum of Apple compared to all the other stocks in the NASDAQ 100. And then we would buy the top five or the top 10 or whatever it may be. So that's called relative momentum. Um, I put it in the same basket as trend following because it has the same return distribution as trend following. That is, you know, you've got the outliers there, which is making all the money. Um, and you can do that on stocks. Uh, you can do either or on stocks. Okay, cool. Well, just for simplicity's sake for this particular episode, uh, let's focus on the first example. So absolute. Uh, okay, an absolute. Yep. Yeah. Sure. Before we get into it, I will ask you, do you feel as though uh, trend following strategies are best suited for certain types of traders or investors? Because they're, I guess they're quite um, slow moving, uh, quite systematic, uh, like removes a lot of the decision making once you've got an actual strategy uh, built. Um, do you find that there are certain people who tend to gravitate towards these strategies or who are better suited for? Um, yeah, well, first of all, trend following is no different from any other strategy, okay? It has it has its pros, it has its cons. Uh, you can pick holes in it, but then again, you can pick holes in any kind of strategy. Um, in terms of the kinds of people that are, um, uh, are attracted to trend following, I would say those that have more of a uh, mathematical head for numbers, uh, engineers, um, those kinds of people that want certainty, they want to be able to backtest. Um, they, you know, they generally will have a professional life, you know, a professional career that keeps them busy, and they will tend to have family, uh, which keeps them busy. So they want some certainty. They want something that doesn't take a great deal of time. And trend following does kick, uh, tick those boxes. Um, you know, as I said, I run a monthly, uh, two monthly models, and it literally takes me 10 minutes a month. And, um, 
you know, it's it's nothing better for a busy person. And you, the the benefit with that is that you don't have to worry too much about the day-to-day ups and downs. And I think all trend-following models, because you need to give them room to move, um, the ups and downs and the noise of the market, you just you can start to ignore that. And I'm not saying it's easy to ignore that, but it's very beneficial that you can't ignore uh, knowing. So, for example, if I wake up in the morning and the Dow's down 2%, well, it's not really going to impact my portfolios a great deal. Okay, they're going to be down on the night, but so is a buy-and-hold portfolio. But it's not like, oh, my gosh, the Dow's down 2%. I've got to take defensive action. I've got to get out of everything, and I've got to go short. You don't – it's not that quick, you know. So, it certainly appeals to a certain kind of a person. Uh, I guess that kind of a person would be someone who's busy, someone who's more mathematical-minded, wants a bit more certainty. Um, yeah, that's – as a rough guide. I was waiting for you to say something about uh, – it gives you – leaves plenty of time for fishing. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that too. But you look, you're quite right. I mean, I spent I spent five years on the trading floor of the Sydney Futures Exchange, and it was the best place on the planet to to work when it was busy. But for the other ninety eight percent of the time, you just sat there drumming your fingers, waiting for something to happen. So, um, you know. It, Smaller markets like Australia, that tends to happen a little bit more than something big and broad in America where there's always kind of something going on. But, you know, as far as my life is concerned, I've got better things to do and watch numbers roll over its screen. But that's that's the way the markets go. You know, everyone's different. Um, it, it wouldn't be – it wouldn't work if everyone was the same. Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's, let's start getting into some details around this. So, I guess the first step would be – coming up with an idea. So how do you come up with an idea? How do you come up with your strategy rules for how you're going to catch a trend? Well, how long's a piece of string? At the end of the day, the whole concept, and that goes for any kind of strategy, not just trend following, is, you know, your beliefs about the market. Um, so, for example, if we if we think about the beliefs, someone like Warren Buffett, value investors, you know, they're looking for great companies at, at a bargain price. That's their belief. That's where they think they make money, and that's fine. But with trend following, our beliefs are that every trend starts from a breakout. So, um, if prices are going to trend higher, well, they have to keep they have to be making highs right so the first thing to look at if you're building a trend style strategy is some kind of a breakout which when we think about it that's exactly all the turtles were doing you know 30 40 years ago um, they were just trading a, a breakout because their philosophy was very simple every trend must start with a breakout so that would be the way to start looking for some kind of a breakout um, so my recommendation as a starter would be looking for, if you're using daily charts, looking for a longer term breakout. A lot of people say, well, just divert back here a second. A lot of people tend to say that, you know, the turtle method doesn't work these days. Um, I'll, I'll prove that wrong by the end of this podcast, but a lot of people say that because they're still looking at the old turtle rules from 30, 40 years ago. But markets change over time. And if you listen to some of these guys, and some have been on your podcasts in the past, if you listen between the lines, you can hear them actually telling you that the markets have changed. They're more or less doing the same thing as what they were doing 30, 40 years ago, but just a slight variant of that. 
In other words, they tend to be trading longer-term breakouts rather than the shorter-term breakouts which they were trading back then. So let's use an example. We could use, a, say, a 100-day breakout rather than a 20-day or one of, you know, a well-known system that I created uh, about seven or eight years ago, which is very, very popular around the world and traded on a lot of markets, is the Weekend Trend Trader. So that's a weekly breakout. It uses a 20-week breakout um, as a trigger point. So that would be your first port of point of call or point of reference, a breakout. So a 20-week breakout, what does that mean? You've just got to close above the highest high of the past 20 weeks? That's right. So we would look back for the last 20 weeks and we would only do this at the end of each week. So this would be deemed a weekly system. So the close of business on a Friday, as an example, we would say, right, what stocks have broken out of their 20-week high? Now, you probably wouldn't want to keep that um, as basic as that, okay? So, again, let me sort of digress a little bit here because this came up the other day. There was some uh, discussion and an article written on Twitter, which I don't particularly agree with, and it revolved around the fact that some people claim trend following is actually not a very good strategy. Um, But my argument was they were using a very, very simplistic bedroom kind of mechanism. Um, And look, simple things really aren't going to work that well. They'll still work, but they're not going to work that well. I think you've got to be a little more sophisticated than, say, buy when prices cross a 200-day moving average, right? That's really not going to hack it. So I would say the same for something that breaks out of a 20-week high. We that would be very basic um, and you'd want to improve on that. The easiest way to improve on something like that would be to add a confirmation filter if you like, all right? So step number one, we'd want to see that 20-week breakout. Step number two, we want to see some kind of confirmation and a good way to see uh, have confirmation is the rate of change over those 20 weeks uh, is above a certain level. So we're not just looking for a gradual increase um, over the 20 weeks. We want a reasonable rate of change for that period of time. So it's some acceleration. So what we could do as an example is we could use the rate of change over those 20 weeks and make sure that when we got a 20-week breakout, that rate of change was above a certain hurdle. So let's say the rate of change was above 30 which is what we use in the weekend trend trader strategy. All right, so you've basically got two entry criteria. You want a weekly breakout and you want the rate of change for the last 20 weeks to be above 30. That's a bit of a confirmation because that way it gives us a strong breakout. Okay, we don't want weak breakouts. We want a strong breakout. We want, a, we want an explosive move. How are you measuring the rate of change? And you mentioned 30 there. Is that, what is that, 30% or 30 What's the unit of measurement? Um, so rate of change is simply the percentage change price on price for the last 20 weeks. And yeah, 30 would be 30%. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. So all basic all basic technical analyst um, platforms will have a rate of change indicator in there. 
and it's simply the percentage move of the price over the last 20 weeks. So we just want to set it up to a hurdle. So we'll set that hurdle to 30 as an example. So 20-week breakout, if the rate of change is above 30, then bang, we've got a buy signal right there. Mm-hmm. Now, as you've been doing this for many years, and I'm sure in that time you've tested hundreds, maybe even thousands of different ideas. Mm, got a big graveyard back there. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything that you've learned or kind of stands out to you about entry rules? Because obviously when you when a when a new trader is trying to think about how to create a trend following strategy, they're probably trying to think about how to get the the magic combination or like you know how to define the best breakout. Having tested so many different entries, is there anything you've learned from running so many experiments? Well, stop looking for the best breakout. It doesn't exist. All you want is a breakout. The money's not made by having the best breakout. The money is made from riding the winners for the long haul and cutting those losses very quickly. That's the key right there. We could use any kind of a breakout essentially. I'm not going to go down the path of saying a coin flip, but at the end of the day, every trend, as I said, and as I'm only repeating what the turtle said 40 years ago, every trend starts with a breakout of some type, i.e. a price movement above a recent high, okay? Whether that be a 52-week high, a 100-day high, a 20-week high. Um, I'm doing some um, uh, work at the moment for one of my talks um, at the upcoming conference uh, because one of the things that's been thrown at me lately, I've seen it twice, I think, in the last three days on Twitter is when a stock hits an RSI of 90, well, it's got to be a sell. So let's put that to the test, which I went and did. And for the first three days, you're quite right, the stock tends to pull back when the RSI. But if we go and test that and hold that out to 100 days, the other 97 are all profitable when you buy an RSI when it goes, when it hits 90. So again, an RSI hitting 90 is a form of positive momentum. Um, my main retirement account that I uh, have been trading since the late 90s, long only equities in the Australian market, it uses a Bollinger Band breakout. Nothing special there, you know, but it's still a breakout. You're using some volatility filters. So the key is I don't think there is any special type of breakout that is better than any other, ultimately. What makes the money is not the breakout. What makes the money is holding on to those winners and riding them and then cutting the losses quickly. Um, that, that would be the core ingredient. I, I think too many people um, use too, they, think, they think it through too hard. You know, one of my mentor students, for example, just this week, she sent me her first attempt at a momentum-style model. And there was about four or five parameters in there, things that seemed logical to her, and the performance was quite terrible. And I said, let's strip all this garbage out. Let's just go back to simple stuff and and start with simple breakouts and see how we go from there. And she's now building a, a very good model on that. So I think the key is not to keep trying to find the holy grail. It doesn't exist. I think the key to successful trading 
is apply a very simple method for the long term. Most people can't do that. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay, so perhaps I should flip that question a little bit to ask you about trailing stop losses because ultimately that's how a trend following strategy operates buys the breakout and then there's a trailing stop loss in place um, and you just keep, I guess, moving that up until it ultimately gets hit at some point in the future. Yep. So just before we go there, can we just step back one second because I think we've just missed an important step there. We've got the 20-week breakout. We've got a confirmation filter, which is, say, a rate of change over the last 20 weeks has to be above our hurdle, which we've set at 30. Another key ingredient here is when we're trading stocks on the long side, we need to ensure that the broader market is also trending up, okay? That would be called a regime filter. And all my research, without a shadow of a doubt, suggests that you should only buy stocks when the broader market is trending up. So if we're talking, if we're if we're trading, say the Russell 1000, we want to ensure that the S&P 500 or the Russell 1000 itself, the index itself, is actually trending up. When the index is trending up, it puts the odds in our favour. It's like, you know, a rising tide will lift all boats. A falling tide will tend to drop all boats. You know, look at the GFC. Yeah, there might have been a couple of stocks that went up in that time, but not many. So adding a regime filter is a key ingredient to putting the odds in your favour and greatly enhances the risk-adjusted return of all strategies. So a regime filter, again, would be something simple. Um, It would be we're only going to take buy signals if the S&P 500 is above its 200-day moving average, as an example, and that will work wonders. It will make a big difference to the bottom line. Okay, so um, the part about uh, the trailing stop loss. Yep. So the trailing stop, and this is a this is a tricky one because there's a lot of information out there that you should have your stops uh, set at eight percent or five percent, um, but 
you want to follow a big trend. You want to catch a big trend. You're never going to make money by taking small trends. You know, you want to make the big money and follow the big trends. That means you have to give yourself or the position some room to move. All right. The markets just don't go straight up. They zig, they zag, they congest sideways for a while, and then they go again, and then they come back a little, and then they go again. If your stop, if your trailing stop is too tight, you're going to get knocked out of those trends just by purely from the noise of the market. And I would have to say that the markets are getting noisier and noisier and noisier. I know for a fact that my trailing stops over the years have got wider and wider and wider, and that's just to keep you out of the noise. Again, I've done research on this. I did a whole webinar on this, if any of your listeners are interested in it. But we recognized that a trailing stop somewhere in the vicinity, the I think the optimal number is actually 18%, but a trailing stop that runs about 20% behind the position or the recent closing price um, will allow you to follow long-term trends. Just on the surface, that sounds like quite a wide stop, 20%. Sure. So let's put it into the context of a portfolio though. So let's say we're going to have, uh, let's keep it pretty simple. Let's say we're going to have 20 positions and we're going to allocate 5% of our capital to each one of those positions. If we run a 20% trailing stop and that gets hit, then your loss on your total portfolio is only going to be 1%, all right? So to give you an idea, my main trend-following strategy that I use for my retirement account, let me just pull up the numbers here. I should have had them. uh, Let me just pull them up here just to give you an idea because that's a very common question. And some people say, oh, my God, you know, you you lost 20%. Well, it's not 20% of the whole portfolio. It's 20% on that position, and that's only if that stop actually gets hit, right? Uh, We are buying strength. Strength does tend to persist. um, But sometimes, yeah, we can buy the absolute top. I've certainly done that. No no dramas there. But, you know, you do this long enough, it's going to happen. I guess my line of thinking around this was you have your entry and then you've got your stop about 20% below. That's kind of your risk on the trade, right? Yep. With such a wide stop and you have to spread your risk along between that, it means that your position size is obviously not as big as if you could get a tighter stop on it. So, um, you know, you need, I guess you need to make sure that when you do catch those winning trends, um, that you can catch a large enough move to justify having um, quite a wide stop. Would that be correct? You're probably overthinking it a little bit. I understand where you're coming from, and it may well be that the argument for a tighter stop could be made if you had a much more accurate entry mechanism. If you had a much more accurate entry mechanism, if you like, mm-hmm. then you could certainly may have a tighter stop. Um, but invariably, what that's going to do is, um, especially when the market's noisy, is chances are you're going to get knocked out more often than not. You know, so I'm just going to read some real statistics. These are my actual statistics for the last four or five years. The average trading loss, right, on position, single position loss for me is 11.97%, which roughly is what, 0.6% of, 0.6% of total portfolio 
okay? And that's nothing. You know, you we hear the old 2% rule. Well, I'm risking 0.6 of 1%. So, you know, those, those 20%, look, they do come along, but not as often as you would think. Um, and to give you an idea, my um, average win is 31%. So, two and a half, 2.6 times that amount. And there's that edge I was talking about, right? My win rate is only 44%, but my win-loss ratio is 2.6. And that's exactly how we get a positive expectancy. I'm outperforming the market over the last four or five years by, you know, a considerable margin. Um, so, it's about giving it enough room to move so you can ride those big winners when they come along. Um, so, it's hard to it's a hard to conceptualize, um, but as I said, my goal here is to outperform buy and hold. And where's your stop loss with buy and hold? Well, you don't have one, right? You're buying and hoping. So, you know, we've got to put it into the context of what I'm trying to do. But this is proven, you know, it's, it's, you can mathematically prove this. Um, these numbers we're talking about or the system we're trying to build here, I'll actually run that through. I've got it coded up. We'll run it through and we'll look at these numbers at the other end. Um, but here's a little twist to that. The trailing stop is or could be dynamic. So let me explain. Assume we use a, a, a generic 20% trailing stop loss, right? One would assume when the market does turn and head lower that all of those stop losses are going to be triggered and each, therefore each position is going to give back 20%, correct? Mm -hmm. So a more dynamic approach to that is we spoke about that regime filter before. When that regime filter goes from uptrend to downtrend, rather than using a 20% stop loss on our current positions, we ratchet that up to 10%. So what's going on there is we're leaving the door open in case we're just seeing a period of consolidation or a small pullback rather than a full-on bear market. We're leaving that door open for those trends to continue or consolidate. But Rather than giving back 20%, we're now only giving back 10%. Does that make sense? It does make sense, yeah. So we've got this dynamic stop-loss procedure going in place that is allowing us – and here's one thing I've learned over the years, okay? When you're following strong stocks and the market tends to have a pause or a pullback – those strong stocks will tend to just consolidate. They won't pull back very far. And they are the ones that are going to take off again when the market starts to head higher. So we've tested things like a time stop where we'd say, righto, if this position hasn't moved X percent in N days, then just cut it and go on to something else. What we found that was actually detrimental to performance because we would be in the leaders and the leaders wouldn't pull back. They would just consolidate. It might be for two weeks or three weeks, but they wouldn't pull back too far. And the broader market would pull back a little bit, but the leaders would consolidate and then they would pop again. So the whole idea is you don't want to get out of those leaders. You want to stay in there. So by moving that stop loss up to 10% from the recent high, what we're doing there is leaving the door open. And sometimes we see a lot of this. Strong stocks keep going up, even if the broader market is moving sideways. And that's what we want. So 
we're taking some defensive action by halving our trailing stop loss and locking some of that in, but we're also leaving the door open in case we're just getting a brief pullback or a brief consolidation period. Okay. And just going back a couple steps, um, or not a couple steps, a couple moments, um, you gave some stats. Were those stats, what account is that? Is that your sort of longer term um, uh, retirement account? Yeah, this is my growth portfolio. Uh, this is a portfolio I actually started trading futures with back in the late 90s, not as my retirement account, but the same strategy. Um, and it hasn't changed much since then. And, and which strategy is that one? Is that the Bollinger Band breaker? This is, yep. This was d- outlined in my book, Unholy Grails, which was written in 2012. And this is the Bollinger Band breakout strategy within that. There's a couple of little special rag tweaks in my own personal one, but it's more or less the same kind of strategy. Okay. So, if someone wants that strategy, they've got to get the book? Look, you can get the book on, on Amazon, but really, if you just Google it, um, Google Unholy Grails plus um, Bollinger Band Strategy, you'll you'll see a ton of people out there are using it and putting it to the test. So, you don't, you don't well, there I say, you don't have to buy the book. There's eight different strategies in the book if you want to look for some different ideas, but that's the main one that I trade and have traded for 20, 20 plus years. Okay. Well, I actually do have a copy of the book and I would say it's, um, it's worthwhile. It's definitely, um, it's good to get some sort of ideas for sort of some strategy ideas that you can actually test because there's hard and fast rules in there that can be tested. That's right. And look, for a certain type of person coming up with ideas, um, you know, is not easy. So it certainly hasn't been easy for me and that's why I continue to read and and look through, you know, certain journals and that kind of stuff because there's a lot of smart people out there doing very different things to what I do and you can always learn something new. One of the little tweaks in this portfolio, which we added in, I think in about 20, 2012, um, made a big difference to the bottom line. And that was something I learned from somebody else. So you can never stop learning, you know, and I've been doing this for almost 35 years and still, you know, things pop up and I can test them out and say, oh, well, that's, that's okay, but it's not really making a big difference or that makes no difference, whatever it may be. Um, so, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's get into that. So I guess this is the next step. We've spoken about how to sort of come up with ideas and, and different things to consider how do you actually go about testing your idea? Like, where do you begin? What's the first step there? Well, ideally, you want some software to do that. Um, personally, I use AmiBroker. It's off the shelf. It's cheap. It does very good portfolio testing, and that's important, okay? We want to test on a portfolio level. Um, so, uh, AmiBroker is, does the job for me. There's plenty of other kind of um, software packages out there. Um, you've got TradeStation, you've got MultiCharts, um, you know, a lot of people use Excel. Um, Can I just with Excel, interrupt yeah. you, Nick? Sorry. Um, when you say it's important to test on a portfolio level, can you just explain what that means? So, a portfolio level means we want to look at a universe of symbols, okay? So, for example, my retirement account, it trades the All Ordinaries Index, which is the same in Australia as the S&P 500. So, there's 500 stocks. We do not want to test individually on each stock, okay, and pick out the best ones um, because personalities change over time. So, what may have been a very nice trending stock 
um, for the last 10 years may not necessarily be the same trending stock in the next 10 years. And a lot of people fall into that trap. So what I want to do is I want to take the whole universe um, of S&P 500 stocks or all, all, ordinary, all ordinary stocks, and I want to test them all together. In other words, I want to say to the computer, I want uh, 20 positions at any one time and I want to allocate 5% of equity and I want to run this test from 1999 through till today for the last 20 years. Um, and it will do that for you. There's a couple of interesting things you just said. Um, one of those is testing across 20 years. Mm. Is that something you would actually do or would you – how would you segment your data to have in sample, out of sample, and you know, going back twenty years, is that like a, um, is that something that you would actually do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're starting to get into some deeper parts of back testing. Um, in terms of in sample, out of sample, that kind of stuff, I'm going to go out and be. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and some people aren't going to agree with this, and that's fine. I don't really care if you agree or not. I'm just telling you the way I do it. But I've been doing it too long. It just doesn't bother me. It's not going to change my opinion. Um, it's not going to change the way I do things. But it's worked okay for me for a long time, so I don't think there's too much wrong with it. But generally speaking, generally speaking, when people go into the depths of in-sample, out-sample, they tend to be more orientated to optimization, okay? In terms of optimization, we do it to see the robustness, but at the end of the day, all my systems use pretty linear kind of input parameters and not many of them. For example, let me give you an idea of a linear input parameter, 200 days, 100 days, 50 days. Okay, so for example, we talked about a regime filter before. We'll use 200 days for that. Is it the optimal one? Probably not. Um, if we have a look at a 20-week breakout, well, that's effectively um, 100 days. So it's half the index filter length, right? So we're keeping the numbers linear. If you come to me and say, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to use 76.7 days for my breakout and my regime filter is going to be um, 127 days. Well, to me, that's optimization and it's not going to stand up in the future. What we do want to do when we optimize is to check the robustness of that parameter. And that that's, you know, we're going probably too far ahead at the moment to get into that. Um so you can choose a small window of time um, by all means and you can choose a longer window of time and then optimise over a smaller window with the theory that the markets are or you're tuning the system to more recent data. So say, for example, we run this test over the last 20 years and it stands up then we're probably onto something reasonably robust. There's not too many parameters. We're not optimizing any of the parameters. We're using linear kind of numbers, 200s, 100, that kind of stuff, uh, and they're going to stand up a lot better. We've got to start somewhere, right? We've got to start somewhere. Um, so a 200-day as a regime filter is a perfect place to start. Yeah. I mean, that all, that all sounds very reasonable. 
Um, one of the other interesting things that you said, which I wanted to pick up on, was uh, limiting to 20 positions. Uh, is that something you also do? Yes. And we do that for a number of reasons. Um, and we use, for these portfolios, um, we use fixed percentage allocations. In other words, um, 5% of your account um, you know, will buy 5% of this stock, okay? So for, we do that for a couple of reasons. It's simple. People understand it. Um, and if people understand it, they're more likely to, to do it. Now, I'm going to get an opinion here. I have no doubt in the comment section that someone says, oh, you have to volatility weight your position. Well, go and test it. Because from my research, volatility weighting doesn't actually make a great deal of difference to the bottom line from doing something simple like this. It doesn't necessarily make the equity curve any smoother. It doesn't necessarily make the drawdown any less. It doesn't necessarily make the return any more. So before you jump all over me and say you've got a volatility match the positions, well, go and test it for yourself because my research suggests it actually makes not much difference. And I think if you find equal weight indexes out there perform significantly better than cap-weighted indexes, if we could kind of call it one and the same type of thing, which we probably can't, but that's my point. So test it first. Don't think that that's the way it's got to be. It sounds logical, but doesn't necessarily test out like that. Okay. Now, when you are limiting to 20 positions or a fixed number of positions, how does that work? So let's say you've got uh, let's say you've got eighteen open positions, and then you have three signals um, the next day. How does your your system determine which signal to take? All right, so that would be called selection bias, and that's when you have more signals than the available cash of um, cash available. Okay, so. That doesn't happen. We talked about those two types of uh, trend-following strategies, absolute and relative. That doesn't happen with relative, okay, because they're all rebalanced on a regular basis, whether it be weekly, fortnightly, or monthly in my case. So that doesn't happen. You don't have that selection bias problem. With an absolute trend-following strategy, such as the one we're discussing here, yes, that would be a problem, but you would add a ranking mechanism in there and again, the ranking would be something pretty simple, like the rate of change over the last period of time, say in the last 20 weeks. So when you're presented with three new signals and you've only got two slots or you've only got one slot, then you would simply take the one with the highest ranking on that particular day. That doesn't suggest in any way, shape or form that that one is going to perform any better than the other two, but it gives us a mechanical way um, from which to make that selection and from which we can backtest accurately. We always want to ensure when we run a backtest that we're always getting the same backtest, we're always getting the same signals. So by using that rank of change, rate of change to rank those signals, we're always going to get the same, um, uh, same backtest results. Okay. And I imagine if you're trading a universe of about 500 stocks, mm -hmm. uh, like you'd mentioned, uh, you're probably always going to be in about 20 positions, right? Well, not necessarily. I mean, for example, it just depends on the market. For example, in the Australian market, I'm only 55% invested at the moment. And there's a reason for that. 
if I was in a different part of the market, I only trade small cap industrials. So the small cap industrials are any industrial stocks that are outside of the ASX 100 and within inside the ASX 500. Okay, that's, that's all I trade. And I trade that for a reason, which is beside the point here. Um, but if we go and look at the top weighted or the top cap stocks, the ASX 100, they're going gangbusters this year. They're having an absolute cracking year and significantly outperforming what I'm actually doing at the moment. Um, the reason for that, market's obviously somewhat cautious. Generally speaking, after a, a significant correction or period of volatility, generally what happens, people move into the safer stocks, the big names, the names they can see out on the street, and they leave the smaller names, the ones I tend to trade, they leave them. So my guess, and it's purely a guess from my experience, is that after fourth quarter 2018, um, most market participants um, are steering clear of the higher volatility small cap stocks like I'm involved in, and they've been solely focused on those um, larger name caps, which tends to me we're still early cycle in this bullish run because usually the risk moves out the curve and that hasn't started to happen yet. So I'm only 55% invested. Um, if I was in the top 100, I'd be 100% invested, no shadow of a doubt there. So when you're saying you're 55% invested, does that mean you've got 11 open positions? Correct. Okay, interesting. Now, when you're thinking about your universe that you're going to trade across, mm -hmm. are there any other conditions or things you like to consider uh, that kind of defines which stocks you're actually going to trade uh, beyond just saying this stock is in the All Ordinaries or the S&P 500? Like, do you have uh, any sort of price filters or volume filters? Yeah, absolutely. So, for example, um, the Australian market is quite small since the GFC liquidity has disappeared significantly in the Australian market and volume filters are certainly very, very important, especially if you have a decent-sized account. Um, I use a average volume filter um, over the last uh, 50 days. I calculate the average, and I want to ensure that my order size is, you know, not going to be any more than 2-3% of the whole daily average volume over that period of time. So that will leave me out of certain types of stocks, um, and that's a safety thing. You know, it would be irresponsible of me to throw a large wad of money into a completely illiquid stock, not only because I'd move it myself, but if I want to get out in a hurry, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of slippage involved. So when uh, I'm trading this particular universe, I do so because it has the highest volatility and the highest return. Um, this is all I do, so I'm happy to be aggressive. And there could be an argument that if you weren't as aggressive as me, you would trade perhaps 50% of your portfolio in these small caps and 50% in the large caps, as an example. So you'd have to look at your own risk return. But again, the, the technology that we have these days, you can test certain parts of the market. You know, you can test the Russell 1000, you can test um, the, as I said, I can go and test all the resource stocks in the ASX on their own. I can test the large caps, 
whatever portion of the market I want to test. And let me also suggest that in this day and age, we can also test uh, historical constituents as well, okay? So survivorship bias is a big problem. And survivorship bias basically means, let's say, for example, we talk about the S&P 500 today. The S&P 500 today contains 500 stocks, okay? And they are the 500 that are currently trading today. But historically, there's been 1,788 stocks in the S&P 500 at one time or another in history. So if we were to focus on a single universe, say the S&P 500, and we were to go back 20 years and test that, well, we would want to be testing the specific constituents of the S&P 500 20 years ago, not what they are today, because today is different, what they were 20 years ago. And we can do that kind of stuff today. So when we test historical constituents, we're actually testing the universe as it was at a point of time in the past. And it makes a big difference to the bottom line. Yeah. I remember you uh, speaking about survivorship bias on the last podcast we did as well. Um, So I'd suggest anyone listening to this also goes back and and hears that episode, uh, episode 64. So it was a while ago. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, okay, okay. So to my original question on uh, on this area was how to test your idea short answer is get a good software package or some good skills in Excel. Yeah, look, the problem with Excel is um, if you want to make a change, it's it, it can't be done very simply, you know. Um, look, there's some great software packages out there that don't cost a lot of money. And if you're not willing to pay for it, well, you've got to kind of ask the question, you're really taking this seriously. You know, make money or you want to save money because – it's like any business. You've got to invest some money into it. You know, um, you've got to invest money into decent software to get the right answers because otherwise you're just going to be guessing. Uh, and you've got to invest some good money into some good quality data. And that's very, very important, especially with the likes of historical constituents um, and all the things that can happen with stocks. You need really good quality data to go into that. And that way you can be assured you're testing uh, will be accurate because you know the old you know the old IT um, uh, saying you know garbage in garbage out. It's simple as that. If you if you code with postdictive errors, well you're going to get a wrong answer and you're going to waste money. You're going to lose money on that. You've got to be careful. You've got to run it as a business and you've got to do it properly. Do you think it's also likely that kind of your average Joe may need some assistance from? Uh a programmer? Well, depends on the software package, I guess. It's like anything, right? It's like taking up golf. The average Joe can go down the golf course and hack around golf balls and maybe in five years they'll get the good hang of it. Or they can go to the local golf pro, get a few lessons, get a grip, get a bit of a swing going and within six months, you know, having a much more enjoyable time. It's like anything. It doesn't just mean trading, tennis, coaching. Uh, heck, I've paid for people to take me out fishing to, to show me the tips and tricks on, you know, putting an anchor out and doing all the kinds of things because I can go out there for the next six months, 12 months and bang my head against the bow of the boat. But 
you know, you get those shortcuts very, very quickly. And you can't buy experience. I mean, you, you just can't. Experience has to be learned over time. So if you go to someone that has a lot of experience in doing this kind of stuff, you're going to get an answer very, very quickly and you're going to save a lot of time and essentially a lot of money. Um, you know, I have a lot of people come to me and they've spent um, minimal amount of money trying to get things done and some people are going around in the same circles for two years. Um, that's a lot of time, especially if it's a strong bull market. You want to be, you want to be invested in those periods of time. Um so there are services available. I mean, we do all that kind of stuff. We have a full-on six-month high-end mentoring course, which we teach you how to program right from scratch all the way through to system design, build, testing, stress testing, and then implementation. Um, we do custom coding. So if you've got an idea that you want coded up, you don't can't be bothered to learn how to code, or we can do it for you. Um, and there's other people out there that, that do that kind of stuff as well. So, um, you know, in my view, having a good mentor that knows what they're talking about can save you a ton of money and save you, more importantly, a ton of time. Because at the end of the day, everyone seems to be very busy these days without much time. Uh, and sometimes a little investment goes a long way. Yeah. I think uh, learning to program, as I've said multiple times on this podcast, is a very valuable skill. And uh, I've done a couple episodes in the past actually which sort of uh give some insight for how to get started on learning to program as well so i'll link to those in the show notes um so if you're interested in that sort of thing might be worth worthwhile listening um because funny enough i've actually uh i actually coded a, a custom back test of my own um and I've actually tested some of the strategies in your book, Nick, uh, which actually got me interested and, and gave me the idea that we should um, tee up and do another podcast together. So, um, yeah, it's it's been a it's been a fun experiment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, the next part is how do we actually analyze these test results? So, I guess what are some what are some things which you look for? What are the checks and measures that you want to see in order for a strategy to pass? Sure. So obviously the key thing that most people look at, um, in my 34 years of doing this, I've not met one person that doesn't like making a profit. I've met a lot of people that hate losing money, but not many people don't like lose, um, making a profit. So the key there is not to just focus on the return. The key is to focus on how you get to that return. Um, so, for example, people tend to get dissuaded very, very easily. I've had people trade, you know, my growth portfolio, for example, come back after three months and say, this is shit, it doesn't work because it just doesn't suit their personality or they don't understand what's going on or they don't understand how you're traveling the journey, you know. Um, and again, we can use an analogy about crossing a city. You've heard me use this one before. You know, let's say we're traveling from Balgala in Sydney to Parramatta. You know, that's a fair hike across a big city. Uh, you're going to run into problems. You're going to run into red lights. You're going to run into traffic jams. You're going to run into roadworks. You might have to take a detour. But if you keep at it, you're going to get to your destination. If you get to the first red light and you've got the hump, and you turn around and go home, well, you're never going to make it to your destination. And it's no, the same for trading, okay? There's going to be ups and downs and, and whatnot. So the better you can understand the journey, the more likely you're going to 
participate for the long term. And that's what I said right at the very start. I think that a big difference between a professional trader and an amateur is a professional trader is someone who's able to keep on keeping on when things get difficult. And this is one of the reasons why we started the mentor course. I can hand people a trading system. You can do that. There's plenty of them available. But the ability for most people to stick with it over the long term is quite difficult simply because it's the unknown. You know, they'll have five or six losses in a row or they'll have three months where their account maybe goes backwards and that pushes them over the edge. So if you can run an accurate back test going back 20 years, it can give you a very high level of confidence, especially if you've built the system from the ground up. And a lot of our testing that we do is actually stress testing as well. We try and break the system. It's not just necessarily coming up with the best result. It's how can I stress test this and try and break it? If I can't break it, well, maybe I'm actually onto something really, really good. To give you an idea of a stress test, right? So in our example that we've been using a 20-week breakout, um, let's say we randomly uh, adjust the closing price on Friday at the end of the week there by a random amount between half a percent and three percent. And then we run the system again. If it's still profitable, we've got this variance of price going on. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we're kind of, you know, the future is never going to be exactly the same as the past. It'll be similar, but it's never going to be exactly the same. And a lot of people say, yeah, well, a back test, it's, it's history, you fitted the data, yada, yada, yada. But it's better than having nothing. And if we can then adjust that history by randomizing, for example, the closing price by half a percent to 3% on a random level and still run it and it's still profitable, well, we've introduced a variable to that backtest that now makes that historical data slightly different and we're still profitable. Um, so they're the kinds of things we can do to that um, to get an idea of, of robustness. You know, the more that you can add to these uh, tests like that and stress test. And if you still come up trumps, well, you're onto something. As you said, the past returns are not really going to, um, you know, future returns are likely to vary from past returns. Correct. How much variance would you expect? Again, I think people slot system traders into a little hole and say, because you don't know, then we can't do it. Well, the same is true for buy and hold. You know, we just had a decade-long period of time from 2000 to 2010 or whenever it was, the lost decade in the US market. Now, tell me anyone in 1999 buy and hold that would have expected 10 years of, you know, sideways returns. It just doesn't happen, right? It's, you're never going to know. Um, if you do your back testing correctly and you do it robustly and you stress test it and you go back in history a fair way, um, then there's a higher probability that what you've done is going to continue to work to some degree in the future. It's never going to be exactly the same. It could be a little bit better. Who knows what's going to happen in the next 10 years? We could have a gangbuster 10-year run. We could go sideways for another 10 years. I don't know. But so long as the strategy is robust, you're going to be much better off than having no strategy whatsoever. We can't possibly know what's going to happen.
Okay. Um, now, just before I asked you the question about, um, you know, what checks and measures do you require for a strategy to, to pass? Um, you spoke about kind of the journey from beginning to trade uh, to the, the finishing P&L figure. You know, can you stomach the drawdowns and can you actually ride the journey to get there? Is that realistic? Are there any other metrics which you like to look for? I know you said earlier on that uh, your win rate is somewhere between 40 to 50%. That actually seems quite good for a trend following strategy. Um, you know, is that one of your prerequisites? Is a win rate above 40% or, uh, you know, a profit factor above a certain level? You know, are there any like hard and fast metrics that you sure. use? Sure. Yeah. Good questions. So, Again, we can talk theory and we can talk reality, okay? In theory, you and you'll see it banded around, um, you can have trend-following strategies out there with win, win rates of 30% that are still profitable. But I'll give you the tip from my experience. Once that win rate starts to go below 40%, it becomes incredibly difficult for people to execute. So I would draw a line in the sand right away and say, you want a trading system uh, with a win rate in excess of 40%. Yeah, you can be profitable at 30%, but mate, it's a tough nut to, to trade it. So the higher the win rate, within reason, um, the better off you're going to be. So mine for example, those numbers I've been talking about on my own is currently running at 44%, okay? Um, so, you know, that's in the ballpark. My US momentum strategies, they run a little bit higher. They actually run in the mid-50s. Um, so that'd be the first metric I would suggest. The second metric, obviously, max drawdown. But look at all the drawdowns, not just the maximum drawdown because the maximum drawdown just could have been a one-off type of thing. Um and, you know, I'm just looking at a particular strategy here. Um, it's got a max drawdown of 48%, which is a bit of extreme, don't get me wrong. But other than that, every other drawdown for the last 20 years has been sub 20%. So we'd want to go back and have a look to see what happened, um, you know, to, to get that bigger drawdown. Other metrics that I look at, profit factor, as you mentioned, um, profit factor is uh, I call it the comfort level. The higher it is, the better it is. So ideally, you want a strategy that has a profit factor in excess of two. So profit factor is calculated by dividing gross loss into gross profit. That'll give you profit factor. Um, payoff ratio, so that's your win-loss ratio. That's got to be as high as possible. Ideally, well over two for a trend-following system. Mine's currently run at 2.56. Uh, I'm behind the curve on that one. Longer-term stats, um, my win-loss ratio is just a little over three. So, you know, that's kind of the swings and roundabouts that you go through. Um, so profit factor over two, higher is better. Payoff or win-loss ratio over two, again, towards three would be good. And win-loss ratio above 40%, ideally closer to 50% if you can. They would be the basic ones I would look at. Okay, great. Cool. Well, that sort of gives uh, anyone listening a, a few things to sort of uh, keep in mind. Now, what happens if you go through all of this and your test results fail? They don't meet uh, these checks and measures and it's just a, a strategy that you don't want to trade. Where do you go? Do you just go back to step one or do you have to uh, approach things a little differently next time around? Well, ideally, you want to have a look to see what's going on. And the best way to do that is go and have a look at each individual parameter itself. 
take take a parameter. So, for example, we've used a couple of parameters here. We've used a 20-week breakout. We've used a regime filter. We use the rate of change over 30. What you'd want to do is go back and look at each one of those parameters individually and see if they're breaking the system down or what's going on with them. Um, and the more you can understand what each different thing is doing, the better idea you've got it, uh, of, of what's going wrong. If you've got a big advanced, you know, lots of different parameters, lots of things going on. Well, when it goes, if it goes a little pear-shaped, it's going to be very difficult to ascertain what's actually gone wrong with it. And that's the good thing with trend following. You can, you can ask the why very easily. You know, I know where my system's going to make money, i.e. a trending market, upward trending market. I know when my system is going to be in cash, and that would be a sustained bearish market, I revert 100% to cash, and I know where my system's going to lose money, and that's going to be in a sideways market. Simple as that. I know what's going on. I can look at the market and see, why am I losing money? Oh, yeah, we've just had that big correction, and I was fully long into that. Bang. That's as simple as that. So, go back to those individual parameters, not uh, have a look at them independently, seeing, pull one out, completely remove it, see what difference it's making to the system. I would be very hesitant to add too many more parameters in there. Less is more. Um, and uh, then from there, you might want to have a look at uh, the robustness. So, for example, we've used a 20-week breakout. You might want to go and have a look what happens if we test everywhere from 10-week to 50 weeks, okay? And you would have a look and plot that and see what it looks like. And you might say, well, actually, 30-week breakout, uh, they're all profitable between 15 and 50, but 30 is actually a lot more uh, profitable, or a lot more optimal than 20. Um, you don't want to get into a position where you go and run that optimization and you see that uh, 15 is profitable, 16, 17 is profitable, 18 is a loser, 19 is a loser, 20 is a winner, 21 is a winner, 22 is a winner, 23 is a loser, 24 is a loser, 25 is a winner. That is not robust. When I run my systems, for example, my momentum systems that look at a 200-day rate of change, well, every, every level between 50 and 300 is profitable. So if the market moves in the future, you're still going to be on the map to making money. Uh, and that's the important thing. You don't want a, a strategy where you've got a lot of lumps and bumps in the optimization, if you like. So bottom line, pull it apart, take a look at the individual pieces, see what's going on, ask the question, what is this actually doing? How is it helping me? Uh, look at things like your regime filter to make sure that's working. Um, to give you an idea, this little strategy with the regime filter on, the max drawdown is about 24%. With the regime filter off, max drawdown is about 48%. So things like that can make a big difference as we discussed before. Which strategy is this? The 20-week breakout? Yeah, 20-week breakout. Okay. In that example, what sort of trading stop are you using? So that one, um, that is a 20% initial uh, with a 20% trailing stop. And when the regime filter turns down, i.e. the market turns bearish, that ratchets up to 10%. Okay, cool. Gotcha. All right, well, let's say uh, all our checks and measures pass and we decide this is a strategy that we'd like to uh, deploy into a live market. Mm -hmm. How do you actually go about that? So ideally what you would do in this type of a strategy, because we've used that ranking, 
um, what we would do is we can either initiate the current existing open positions. So we would select a back test period of time. So let's say we're going to back test from um, 1st of January 2005 as an example. We would run the back test from then, and that would become our 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 um, point of reference going forward. And we may decide, well, currently, in my case, as an example, well, I've got 11 open positions. So you could, if you wanted to, buy those 11 open positions right here, right now, and then you're on par with your back test. The alternate would be to wait for the next new positions to come in. So we've got uh, nine more slots to fill, and therefore we would wait for the next nine buy signals to come through. But ideally, you would buy those 11 existing positions, get yourself to that point, um, and then the new, buy the new nine when they come on. Okay. And I know you your strategies, are, they're entirely automated, right? There's no, no input from you? Um, well, I actually have to run them myself. So, you know, something like a weekly strategy like this one we're talking about, you'd only have to push the button after close of business on Friday, generates the orders for you, and then you would just manually place them. I don't bother doing automated stuff on these trend-following systems because, you know, I might not have to do anything for three weeks. On my short-term mean reversion strategies where you're placing 40 orders every single night, um, yeah, well, that's a different kettle of fish. But, you know, if I, like yesterday, no, today I had a sell order. So I placed that sell order last night before I went to bed. It executed market on open this morning. That's it, you know. Um, it took 30 seconds, you know. It took longer to actually log into the account than it did to generate the order. So there's no point really automating these kinds of systems per se. Okay. And when you say you log in and you run it, what are you actually doing there? You're logging into, is it AMI Broker? So, yeah, the, the actual process I use, all my orders are generated through AMI Broker or through the software, okay? So it's actually programmed. I have an exploration. The exploration is generating the signals for me and doing the position sizing. Then once AMI Broker has my selected stocks um, that I need to buy today or sell today, I then log into my broker and simply place the order. AMI Broker is not connected to the broker in this particular instance. Okay. And, you know, regardless of what software they use in it, pretty much they just need to be able to scan the market for certain criteria, really? Okay. So, there's yes to a point. So, you can have a, a scan or an exploration, if you like, to find criteria, but... We've taken that one step further, right? We've actually tested that criteria to ensure that by following a set group of rules, that criteria is going to give us a positive expectancy as opposed to just scanning the market for a MACD crossover or oh, an yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I meant like scan for the, the parameters of your strategy. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's all built into my software. That's all built into my code, if you like. You know, yeah, the average system of mine's got three or 400 lines of code, and that includes exploration code, backtesting code, and all that kind of stuff. But so, I'm just thinking, like, for someone who's a beginner, mm -hmm. like, if this is their first strategy that they're sort of trying to roll out here, how are they going to get the signals each day? Like, you know, if it's a very basic uh, trend-following strategy – chances are they have a software package that can scan for certain parameters, 
been mm-hmm. the parameters of the strategy. Correct. Which is going to display all the stocks which meet that criteria, yep. um, which they can then go through and sort of confirm and then place the orders from there, right? That that would be a pretty sound way to approach it. Yes. So in our particular instance here, their first check would be, uh, is the market trending up or down, yes or no? If yes, then continue. Um, find any stock that's made a 20-week breakout, uh, any stock that's made a 20-week breakout where the rate of change is over 30, um, and what else? What other criteria? That was it. That's the, that's the criteria, right? So yes, you could scan for that straight away. And then you would rank them, obviously, okay? So you'd put the rank in there, check their rate of change for that period of time, the highest ones, and they would be the ones you would buy. And then I guess the next part of that is obviously updating um, the price of the trailing stop loss order. Yes. So here's something else that we do. Um, we don't use, we don't put our trailing stop losses into the market. We use closing price only to determine the exits. So for example, we we said before that price had to close uh, below that, well, sorry, we didn't say that, I'm gonna tell you now. That we, we've been using a 20% trailing stop. Uh, that doesn't mean the price hits that intraday and bang, your order gets executed. It has to close below that intra, uh, at the end of the day, and then you would execute the exit on the open the next day. And again, we've found our research that that adds quite a bit of value using the um, – it does a lot of things, actually. It adds a bit of value to the performance. Um, second of all, it ensures that you don't have to place that stop loss into the market and be prone to slippage. And thirdly, um, especially in a situation where, you know, you run a service like ours where you've got a lot of people, um, you know, you're not going to have that slippage kind of problem. The opening options that we use are very liquid, the most liquid parts of the day. And as a result, slippage is greatly reduced by executing those orders on the open in that opening auction. And the other thing I would also say is that some brokers, believe it or not, some brokers charge you to use a stop loss. Really? Yep. Mate, <laughs> I'll tell you. I won't say who, but there's a couple of brokers in Australia that actually charge you 10 bucks to place a stop loss. But a stop loss is just an order. Well, mate, I'm telling you. Oh, get a new broker. <laughs> exactly. Well, absolutely right. Change brokers. Um, and look, it wasn't that long ago where a lot of Australian brokers, for that matter, didn't actually use stop losses. That's still a relatively new thing, you know. A lot of people still don't even know what they are and how to, you know, how to execute them. So you're quite right. If, if your broker doesn't do it, change brokers. Simple as that. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, that's one of the things we've learned over the years. And you, you tend to get a lot of price spikes down where they might be just illiquid holds in the market and prices just run and then come straight back again. And we've found that a, a solid close price below that trailing stop is the better uh, exit criteria. Okay, so you're always uh, sort of calculating things based on the closing price and then executing on the open the following day. Correct. Yeah. All right. And that's both for entries and exits. Okay, cool, cool. Well, I think that's most of the, the process. Um, <laughs> 
I don't know, have we missed any steps along the way or is there anything in there you'd like to add? I do have one other thing I would like to ask you about, but before I do, um, is there anything we've missed? Look, there's a lot involved, you know, as I said, um, you know, back testing, stress testing, coding correctly. There, It is very, there is, you know, there is a lot of in, uh, involved in that. A lot of people make very basic errors. You know, as I said, um, that code from Unholy Grails, you know, most of those codes are 250, 300 lines. People send me their versions and they're six lines of code. And it's like, okay, well, what are you kind of doing different to me if I've got 250 or 300 lines of code in here? Um, So, you know, garbage in, garbage out. You've got to make sure you're able to code it correctly. There's a lot of other nuances um, with with data that you you really have to take into account. So, for example, we do not... um, we do not generate any signals with dividends included in the data. We remove the dividend-adjusted data or we, we generate signals on dividend-adjusted data. Um, we can do backtesting on uh, data that has the dividends including, but you don't want to generate signals on that. Um, things, Little things like that. And there's quite a few of those little kind of things out there. Yeah. But, you know, like all things, mate, it's like golf. You've got to learn the nuances of, you know, how to read the green and get out of the sand trap and, you know, play to the wind and so on and so forth. It's, it's no different to that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's a very fair point. And I think, but I think nonetheless, like what we've discussed here is a very good starting point for anyone who's interested in developing a trend following strategy. Yeah. Um, I think that's unrealistic to think that, you know, you're going to be an expert on it from just having listened to an hour-long podcast, but it's a good starting point, yeah? Absolutely, and there's a lot of resources out there. You know, you've had a lot of trend followers on on your podcast. There's a lot of books out there on the topic. Keep it simple. Um, Do the testing properly. Take your time. Um, You know, build a system to your own beliefs. Everyone is different. Build it to your own beliefs. Um, and just be rigorous in your testing. And then it's just the long-term application. You know, it's as, it is boring. It's boring, but boring's good. You know, I've been running the same system now for 22 years or something like that, um, and not much has changed. Not much has changed in terms of the actual strategy structure. Um, you just keep rolling through, you know, just roll it and roll it and keep going. And some years are good and some years are great and other years are mm, not so good, but that's how it happens, you know. If it, if it happens to Buffett, well, I guess it can happen to me, right? <laughs> <laughs> the last thing I wanted to ask you, and it's uh, it's a little bit off topic, but, uh, you know, trend-following strategies are strategies which are used by, you know, very large money managers, hedge funds, CTAs, etc. What are some of the things that they do, you know, some of the more advanced things that they do, which we obviously haven't discussed here and... Um, you know, might not be so commonly found in, um, you know, a lot of the literature and content uh, on trend following that is out there. Like, are there any kind of advanced tactics that they use? Well, the first thing that comes to mind would be something like swarm theory. Um, what's, a, what's a way to, to discuss that? So, swarm theory... Let's, let's say that you've got, um, let's use our strategy. Let's call it a 100-day breakout strategy that we've been talking about, or 20 weeks. Let's call it 100 days. So markets change over time. Theory, common theory goes that uh, every so often, once a year, you would optimize that 100-day breakout 
make sure you've got a robust set of parameters and then pick a parameter uh, that is kind of optimal but in a robust flat spot, right? So it might be this year we're using 100 day. Next year we do that and it moves out to 105 days. Um, just like the turtles, you know, they've moved out from 20 days to whatever they're doing these days, 100 days or whatever it may be. So over time, uh, your, your strategy will slowly change with the market. So that's the way it's been done in the past. Um, the more modern way of doing it is what's called swarm theory. And you're basically running the same model but using 15, 20, 30 different parameters instead. So you would trade the same model with a 100-day breakout. You trade the same model with 110-day, 120-day, 130-day, 140-day, 150-day. You trade them all as one. And the whole idea being is that as the market personality changes back and forth over time, well, you've got that best optimal base covered because – your one of the systems that you're trading is using that breakout length. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it That's does. a very basic way of explaining it. Um, that for a retail trader to execute would be pretty expensive, pretty complex, um, but that's, I believe, that's what some of the big guys are doing. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Well, something to look into, I guess. Mm, mm. Cool. All right, Nick, well, let's leave it there. I think we've gone for a bit longer than um, I'd anticipated and um, probably you'd anticipated as well. That's all right. Um, but, man, awesome. Really, really good. Uh, thank you very much for doing this. Uh, I think, uh, as I said just before, like a really great starting point uh, using the information that you've shared here for anyone who's interested in developing some, you know, very simple trend-following system of their own. Uh, obviously, also, as you said earlier, it's not for everyone, but you know there there are some advantages to trend find strategies, as you know all too well. So yeah, again, really appreciate you taking the time um, to share this, Nick. Um, it's been awesome. No problems. And if anyone wants to contact me, uh, best website is nickradge.com, or you can just drop me an email, nick at nickradge.com, and happy to answer any questions. So yeah, thanks, Aaron. Great to chat again. It's been a long time. Um, so, um, uh, thanks for having me on board. No doubt. And do you just want to drop your Twitter handle? Yeah. The Twitter handle is at the chartist. Okay. At the chartist on Twitter and, um, some older episodes with Nick episode 64 and episode four, one of the, the very original episodes. So my interviewing skills were, were pretty sketchy back then. And, um, Hopefully, I've got a little bit better since, but um, yeah, don't expect uh, too much from episode four. <laughs> <laughs> when was that? That was 2015. Wow. Four years. Okay. Well, not too long ago. I can remember back then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Once Great again, Nick, stuff. really appreciate it, man. Um, we'll talk soon. Thanks a okay. lot. Okay. Appreciate it. Thanks, Aaron. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders. But rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. And we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.